1: hello and welcome to the publicly challenged podcast i'm your host luke oswald and i hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter angler and forager stick with this and who knows maybe we will learn something together okay so i'm sitting here and i am talking to lindsey davis and lindsey um want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure.
2: Yeah. Uh, Lindsay Davis, originally from Colorado, now based in Salt Lake City. And I am a hunter and a gardener and a bird dog wrangler. uh, And I work for the uh, Outdoor Recreation Roundtable, which is a DC-based organization and um, generally strong-footed in the outdoor industry and involved in a lot of different projects when it comes to citizen science and kind of merging different outdoor recreation user groups and, um, just generally a very passionate outdoors woman. So,
1: um, when you grew up in Colorado, you were kind of a little bit of an outdoorsy tomboy or was it more just kind of love and super passionate about the outdoors?
2: Well, so I, uh, my my parents raised three girls, and I think my dad just kind of, to his credit, uh, raised us as if we were, you know, his kids, not necessarily just his daughters. And so he did all the things with us that I think he would have done with his boys if he would have had them. So we were always camping and fishing, and um, and me in particular gravitated towards you know hanging out in the shop with him and learning how to build and use tools and just was kind of a curious kid we always had a um, we would always build a pitching mound in the back of the yard somewhere where we could play <laughs> baseball and stuff like that so yeah and my little sister especially she she and I were always kind of up to something and we were masters at crawdad fishing and probably did a lot to the Damage the riparian zone behind our house. But um, yeah, generally very fortunate to, to grow up with a lot of outdoor exposure. And my grandparents kind of built that legacy into our family by um, their honeymoon was going on a Boundary Waters canoe trip. Um, and so then they raised their kids going on those trips. And then eventually we started getting to go. So my first like extended wilderness experience was one of those canoe trips, um, in Minnesota. And I think we were out for like 11 days and I think I was 10. Um, so yeah, it's you know, of course we're fishing every day and catching the biggest pike I've ever seen. And, (laughs) um, yeah, we had, we had a solid, solid upbringing in the outdoors and, and of course playing sports and stuff.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, that's one thing I still need to make a trip and do. And it's crazy that I live so close to the boundary waters and still haven't even been up there and done a canoe trip yet. But one of these days, (laughs) (laughs) hopefully when my kids get a little bit older, but right now they're kind of at the age where I don't know if that's, that's really possible, but we're going to get there. So I know you did some permaculture projects and things like that. Can you kind of touch on that and the different work you've done in like Mexico and Africa? And I mean, you've been all over and done a lot of things and it's pretty cool. And I love learning about soil and all the kind of how it ties into farming
2: or practices. Yeah, of course. So my last quarter of college, I did a program that is unfortunately now closed, but it's called the Sierra Institute. And it was a two-month field studies program where we backpacked and learned about ecology and permaculture. Um, It was called Bioregionalism, Community, and Sustainable Living. And it was all conducted outdoors. So, which is a great send-off for (laughs) finishing college. It was perfect. And I basically finished the program and then was like, can I work for you? (laughs) And, um, and was fortunate that they gave me a job and I ended up working for them for a couple of years. And so I guided these two month field studies programs where we would teach people how to backpack teach people about, you know, ecology and bioregionalism. And this was mostly Northern California. Um, and then we'd spend, a month at a homestead learning about permaculture and sustainable living and how to grow your own food and how to, you know, kind of work within the eco ecological, um, resources that you're surrounded by. And then we do another two weeks of backpacking and, and that was just a super cool time. Um, it was experimental. I remember one season (laughs) I was supposed to be a, a, like farming apprentice and had moved up there and, couple days before, you know, we were gonna start, they were like, Well, the farmer's not coming, so you're in charge. (laughs) And I was like, What? Like I'm not I'm not at all qualified for this. Um, but you know, they just gave me the reins and there were tons of books and resources there. And so I had a really cool opportunity to learn and experiment and do trial and error, which you don't always get that opportunity in a in a work setting, you know, you normally someone's like, I need you to do it like this and you do it like that. Um, so I, I sort of from there just got into this phase where I was trying to learn as much as I could about growing food and natural building and, um, school garden teaching. And, you know, it was during the time where we were, a lot of people were really focused on revamping food systems in schools. And so we saw this kind of integration of growing food and gardening and science and stem all at the same time. And so I was a part of that. and um, and then when you're trying to make money as as a permaculture designer, you have to do a bunch of different things. And you know, I ended up doing designs for people's individual homes or um, and and helping them implement it if they wanted to landscape their house in a specific way and or if they wanted to start growing a bunch of medicinal herbs or something like that and um and so ended up doing quite a bit of consulting alongside teaching and that took me to some pretty cool places and I was invited to do a project in Japan at a uh, Japanese temple where I essentially lived there for three months and helped them um, design an extension of their zen practice from the temple in the form of a permaculture garden that was in this old persimmon orchard. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been cool. It's been, uh, really interesting. I spent a bunch of time building, uh, natural buildings in the Southwest of Colorado, which was neat. And, and now it sort of just informs a lot of my hobbies because I work on a computer now in the outdoor industry. Um, but you know, it's, and it's been the first time that I've lived in a city in quite some time. And, um, but we're fortunate that we have a big backyard and I'm able to sort of just live all of those, um, those values, even in an urban setting, which I feel very fortunate for that they're just kind of ingrained in who I am now. And I can also help the people around me to get their garden started or, Um, I think, you know, most importantly, whether you have a swath of land or not is just building in some way to kind of create the, that interaction with the environment and around you on a daily basis.
1: Absolutely. I, I love getting out and working my soil, but so I got a question for you. How was it when you, when you went to Japan and you built this, this Zen garden? Um, how did you, I mean, was it like, same plants that or was it like native species that you were working with that were native to Japan or was it relative to stuff we have here what did you how did you know what to do with all that
2: yeah there were some challenges there for sure because then of course the other factor is trying to like find the resources that you know of in your home place in another country and where there you don't speak the language and there's Kanji associated with it. And we had this hilarious experience of me being like, we need to find mulch, you know, and they're like mulch. And they're like, and the the direct translation is like bark, wood chonk or something silly like that. It just took forever to actually source those things. (laughs) But, um, but for the most part, you know, there's, some, uh, there's an international permaculture network that, Thanks to the internet, you can kind of communicate with people and share tips and resources and stuff like that. And um, the, the uh, agricultural like growth, grow hardiness zone, it's very similar to where I was um, living in Northern California. So it was a familiar ecosystem, even though the species were different. And the cool thing about plants is that if you start to get into taxonomy and sort of the Latin, um, you know, pattern and system for plant identification. You can, you can work within plant families. There's some pretty cool books about this kind of stuff. Um, one of them is called Botany in a Day. It's one of my favorites. And if you start to think about plants in these kind of bigger hierarchies, then you can understand how they you know relate to each other um, in a way that's super helpful if you're going to change ecosystems a lot.
1: So I'm actually kind of, that's interesting. I'm going to have to look up that book because with my foraging journey that I'm embarking upon right now, it's it's interesting to kind of, you're starting to learn, you know, brassica family and that all the different things that are entailed within that family. And it's like, oh, well, that one's got similarities to that. I wonder if that's an edible or an invasive or what it is. And so that's pretty cool. That's definitely cool. Do you yeah, do any you foraging or... Uh,
2: Yeah. So before I moved to Utah, I lived in Northern California and I um, went in on some land with a handful of folks and, and that ecosystem, I mean, it's just the most abundant place in the world. It's like, there's always something growing. There's very um, big mushroom flushes every year. There's the ocean, you have the redwood ecology, the oak woodland, which is like, I mean, historically that landscape was one of the most peaceful for first nations people because i i think because there were just so many resources you know there's like everybody you didn't really have to um be as territorial about what you were eating um but so we did a lot of foraging there um and i think i learned you know the most about that ecosystem from my peers at that point because i was just hanging out with so many scientists. I work at this, worked at this place called the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center for four years. And everybody there was super knowledgeable about something. And, um, we all just would share hobbies quite a bit. And someone would be like, Oh, I'm going on a bird walk and I'm going mushroom hunting and I'm going to go harvest seaweed. And, um, so we did all that stuff and it was so cool to be, um, to have that peer group, you know, cuz it's really rare and there's so much you can learn when you like get t- to get tactile with it, um which is it's just so special. So yeah, we did a lot of mushroom hunting, um I forayed with <laughs> crabbing, but I sort of never really out competed the seals in that <laughs> endeavor. Um a lot of seaweed harvesting, a lot of growing food, acorn processing, um, there's huckleberries tons of mushrooms I think already said um and then of course just you know tons of um different edible wild greens and stuff and and then I worked at a nonprofit in Durango Colorado for a little while and, and it was pretty cool because their whole premise was about um, it was called the Turtle Lake Refuge and their whole premise was about relating um the health of wild land to human health. And uh, the founder of that organization, her platform was all about edible weeds and kind of reframing our, our understanding and our label of what weeds are, because most of them are really potent and available medicinal plants. Um, So there was a cafe that she started in an education center um, where we would serve lunch two days a week and then had all these products that we'd sell in farmer's markets and stuff. Um, but every pe- everything that we, um, prepared there, food wise had some sort of wild food associated with it or in, in the ingredients. Um, so the days that the cafe wasn't open, there was usually classes where people would come and we would go out into the San Juans and harvest, bring everything back and then learn how to process it and turn it into cool food so yeah I don't do as much of it I think my harvesting foraging <laughs> I can't really count up foraging but I hunt now um, which is new to me in the last five years and um, that's kind of where most of my um, food gathering energy goes here in Salt Lake
1: so you didn't grow up hunting then
2: no Mm-mm. really Um yeah I started hunting when I was when I moved here so like my late 20s um, yeah, it's, it's been a big surprise to become a hunter. Um, no one in my family hunted and I mean, in my most recent generations, way back, everybody did. Um, but I sort of, I think connected to moving into an urban environment. Um, when I was living more rurally, I used to have just a closer interaction with my food system whether it was like through neighbors who would be raising meat or you know i went through years and years of raising um my own animals for meat and stuff and i because i had the space to do it and um the land and kind of time to do it and then living in a city it's like can't really (laughs) go about that in the same way all the systems are different and um you know i had (laughs) i had become like the roadkill queen in my community where um, I just loved like the interaction and the intimacy of of processing animals and learning how to like preserve them in some way shape or form and at the time I was working at an education center where we would teach like science camps for kids and um, we if there was like a carcass or something on the road we would pick it up and um, set them out with trail cams uh, with groups of kids, and then go back the next day and look at the photos and learn about succession and scavenging and you know what animals come out at night and all that kind of stuff. And so I became like the lady that everybody called when there was a dead animal. And sometimes <laughs> they were like perfectly good deer, you know. And like I learned um, from some mentors in that area how to really safely assess with roadkill like whether or not this is something you should eat or not Um, and so I think over time that gap just started to close for me of like okay growing your own food raising your own food you know working with wild animals and I just realized like I love this so much like there's something that comes so alive in me when I'm getting to like skin a fox and and see and experience what it's like to be that close to a wild animal and then I'm I moved to Salt Lake and my first friend here um is a friend he's, his name is John Chatelain. and he um <laughs> we'd go over to his house and like like you're tonight you're eating mountain goat this is elk this is this and you like kind of look around and the walls are just covered with stories you know and I'm like tell me about that one tell me about that <laughs> one and eventually he was just like do you just want to come with me and I was like yes <laughs> uh, so I I went and had a successful harvest my first year and you know not knowing how I'd feel the entire time and just kind of knowing it every step of the way I'll I'll know if this is something that's right for me or not and haven't
1: looked back. That's awesome. That's so amazing because I love hearing about, especially it just really interests me right now with the whole, I hate the word, but I love the process of what a so-called adult onset hunter. It just, every time I hear that word, I kind of roll my eyes. But at the same time, I mean, I guess that's kind of what it is. To me, it sounds like a disease or you're being diagnosed with some type of disorder or something, but the the actual process of it or or a person that has become that it's just so interesting to hear these stories of what brought them or what led them there and i mean like you said your background kind of really uh kind of solidifies that like that's the next step right other than you know scavenging for animals and of course you could do that but at some point yeah that is a natural progression and that's pretty cool and then but what what really intrigues me is the fact that Not only did you do that, but you chose traditional archery, didn't you?
2: Yeah. Oh, what a sandbag. (laughs) Um, So this, yeah, I I started off rifle hunting and I had two successful rifle seasons in a row, which was great. Um, And then um, I have some... Uh, friends at Mystery Ranch and now I'm actually like formally on their ambassador team which is really awesome because they're just close friends that I would do anything with and for Um, but one of them Ryan Holm he um, he called me last year and he was like hey I have this idea and I want to do a traditional bow hunt um, on the American Prairie Reserve do you want to come with and I was like Yes. Like, <laughs> I was like, are you sure you have the right number? Like, of course I would do that. And cause he knew that I wanted to, um, start archery hunting that year. And Ryan, um, has, has been, oh, you know, a witness. There's a lot of people that have been a witness to my whole sort of foray into hunting. And it, it was really timed with a lot of, I would say change in attention in the hunting community to diversify, our values and who we're talking to and how we're telling the story of hunting. And, and so I think I just sort of stepped in right at that moment with, um, with the perspective to share. And um, there's a lot of people in the outdoor industry, you know, more traditional ski climb hike that um, maybe grew up hunting or who are, you know, relating to it again for the first time, or who just now started to think about it a different way. And Ryan is one of those folks who was like an avid climber who started hunting later in life. and um, and so i'm I'm very lucky to have have gotten that invitation from him and, oh yeah, oh, last year was such a journey. i I hunted oh, how many tags did I hunt? four or five tags? I hunted more days last year than probably my first three years combined and I didn't punch a single tag <laughs> and it was just brutal. And by the end of the season, I was so burnt out, but I learned so much doing the traditional archery path. Um, this just forces you to be a better hunter in every <laughs> sense of the way. And you, you know, immediately what the mistakes are that you made, um, which you just don't experience that uh, when you're a few hundred yards away. Uh, and and looking at an animal through the scope so yes last year was a traditional archery year this year will be a compound bow year because <laughs> uh, I, I feel like I, I need a little more uh, support in the archery endeavor at this point but I'm I'm really looking forward to Um, the lifelong journey of traditional archery hunting.
1: So when you picked up the longbow and started shooting it, who, I mean, did you, did you go to resources? Did you hire a coach? What, how, what route did you take to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm confident I'm going to shoot this bow and I'm going to be successful. What'd you do?
2: Yeah. Well, so Ryan and I both, um, we worked with a boy in Colorado named Buddy Gould who makes these very cool um, kind they're kind of a cross between, uh, a recurve and a traditional longbow. Um, yeah. he calls them the poison dart and, um, they're beautiful. They're so beautiful. And so we got those from buddy and then we, uh, Tom Clum, who's, you know, the master, yeah. uh, in all of this, he has an online course called, um, I think it's called solid archery mechanics and, it's awesome. Uh, so kind of fascinating to learn this very traditional craft on a, from a computer. you know like I'd sit down and watch these segments and then go in my backyard and practice, can come back, sit down, watch these segments, go in my backyard and practice and I just shot every day um, for months and months and months and you know had some had some help from local archery shops here in Salt Lake getting my, Uh, My arrows and everything tuned and the weights, right. And um, yeah, they say that you're, if you can go out and shoot one arrow and it's a, you know, safe, lethal shot, then you're ready to go hunting. Um, And I felt confident after, I don't know, four or five months of shooting very consistently and in a dedicated fashion that I could go do that. And um, even though it's, it's real scary, you know, (laughs) because you, you just, you have to, Archery hunting is a different; it's a different endeavor, and um, the ethics of it, I think, are um, just a bit. I mean, they're there with with rifle hunting as well, but I notice this a lot with new hunters. Like everybody wants the romanticism of an archery hunt, but I think there's a lot more to it than than rifle hunting, and we have to be really careful about how we sort of step into that mode of hunting.
1: Absolutely, there is definitely a lot. A lot of different emotions tied to it and a lot of potential heartbreak that you wouldn't actually see or experience when you're just looking through a scope of a rifle and you know being a trigger man it's it definitely and what's kind of crazy is like so i started my journey and i actually started bow hunting first so it's one of those things that i was up close and personal with animals a lot more than i was um with with a rifle and then kind of went to the rifle, and then it's like, well, this is okay, and I'll do this to procure meat or you know, have a hunt. But like in my head, I can't picture a single hunt that's a dream hunt that's a rifle hunt. Even though I love the San Juans, because you talked about those earlier, and that's like a place, special place in my heart that was where I did my first elk hunt, and it was just amazing. And I towed it around a rifle, but I said, if I ever come back, it's gonna be with a bow in my hand for sure. But Those bows, I want to talk about that because we got kind of, you were talking and I just, in my head though, those are some really awesome looking bows. I mean, it's got a wicked reflex-deflex on them. I mean, um, Mm -hmm. so were you shooting wood arrows then or were you actually shooting like a a modern carbon type?
2: Yeah, so I was shooting um, Valkyrie arrows, which are really cool, like a heavy front of center, awesome arrows and like... You know the all the the broadheads are one solid piece. They're all hand honed and um, yeah. I got, there was some flack from you know the small corners of the internet where flack comes <laughs> from about like this isn't a real traditional archery hunt. Look at you, you're using Sitka and like modern tools and you're bringing a goal zero charger for your phone and whatever, you know, so it was, um, it's not, I'm by no means a purist when it comes to like primitive hunting. Um, and, and yeah, so the arrows were very modern, very cool arrows.
1: <laughs> but I, I don't, I don't, it's, that's a tough thing when you've got people that are criticizing because no matter what, you've got a stick and a string, you've got no sight, you're shooting instinctually, most likely I'm guessing. And it's just, I mean, that alone presents more challenges than those internet trolls, I'll call them that, have probably ever even encountered other than sitting in their mom's basement waiting for her to bring them food or something. But it's sure. just, you know what I mean? It, it, it makes me mad when you hear things like that because it's one of those things that we need to be building a community and, you know, building each other up rather than tearing each other down. i You know, that's like people, Aaron Snyder, all the time, people give him crap about using those plastic fletching veins that he uses, the trad veins that he had uh, developed and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, so I didn't. I personally, when I first got into it, I didn't even know about, you know, carbon arrows for my, you know, just naturally, one of my buddies was like, oh, yeah, I've got this thing. It's kind of like a pencil sharpener, and I taper down a wood shaft and glue on. We'll cut our own fletching out of turkey feathers. And so, I went that direction and yes, it was, but it's not like I was using, I was still using a Delrin or whatever the fabric is for a a bowstring. It's not like I was using cat gut or sinew or something. So it's like, where do do you really draw the line unless you're like Ishii or somebody walking around in your (laughs) moccasins that, you know, it's so... I don't know. That, that's a hard thing to say, and what? How many people are really out there even doing that? I know there's a few of them. Um, there's that Clay something that does that, where he actually does a traditional boat, but he's still wearing, you know, somewhat modern clothing for the most part. I don't know if anybody that in this day and age does that. So that's kind of yeah crappy that people would say that. But
2: oh well, and it doesn't affect me at all. I mean, I hunting is so hard i think even rifle hunting is so hard you know like i started in the mountain west in the high altitude areas of the wasatch and you went to mountains and it's really tough to do big game western hunting out here we have a like very dense wildlife urban interface a lot of pressure not a ton of animals you know, like it's a very tough place to hunt. And so like, I, I'm not at the stage where I, um, I need to make it harder on myself. (laughs) You know, I'm trying to still be able to hunt successfully and, and get repetition on all of the steps of the process that need to be ingrained in me to do things effectively and efficiently. And, um, but to each their own, you know, like, I think that's, um, one of the most complicated about things about hunting is that we all um, we all do it for different reasons. And um, it's always going to be that way. And everybody's going to have their their way of going about it and their why for um, how they engage. And, and that's, that's that, you know, and so there's, there's no one way and there never will be.
1: So you kind of mentioned it, and it was something I kind of wanted to talk to you about anyway. So I'm just gonna kind of talk about it. But the the Wasatch uh, Mountain Research Project. It's like a citizen based research project, right? And that's kind of how you tied in when you're talking about the dense, you know human interface with the. Can you kind of go into that and what that is and what it's about?
2: Yeah, so this is a it's a citizen science project called the Wasatch Mammal Watch, and it's run by a, a student at. The University of Utah named Austin Green, and he's part of the Center for Biological Diversity Lab there. And this is his—I don't—I believe it's his PhD project, but I'm not positive on that. But um, I was a first-year participant. The program's now in its third year and has funding, I think, for the foreseeable future because of how successful it's been. Uh, but it's a, a method of using motion-censored cameras to um study wildlife activity in the wasatch mountains and so i mean luckily i don't know his um we're we have a very um perfect environment for it here in salt lake and with the wasatch because we have the densest wildlife urban interface of anywhere in the country and more people visit the wasatch than all five national parks in Utah combined. Um, oh. So we have this. And, and then, of course, all the mountains are surrounded by desert. So it creates this really extreme concentration of the biological diversity that we have in the mountains um, because they're separated from other key habitat areas. Um, and then we have, you know, just immense pressure from development and visitation um, so anyway there's about 100 of us that uh, monitor these uh, motion sensors just like trail cams basically same thing actually we use like the same trail cams that hunters love um, so they capture images based on heat and motion detection um, but it's a way for scientists and researchers to get um, just like amazing Uh, depth with their data because they're recording 24 hours a day for the entire period of time rather than you know an individual ecologist or researcher sitting there in a snapshot of time saying this is what I saw Um, so they're becoming really uh, profound tools for um for science and research and and we have I think 200 camera locations uh throughout the Wasatch that um we all take care of three sites for the season, one camera over three sites and we move it every month and check on it every two weeks and make sure we're not just taking a picture of like a piece of grass 30,000 <laughs> 30, times, which has happened.
1: I have um, had that too.
2: Oh, <laughs> so frustrating when you get that. Um, yeah. But we, then all the, uh, the data's compiled and, They're working really closely with the um, Utah Department of Transportation and the uh, Department of Wildlife to figure out where the species density is in the mountains here. And so we can enact sound conservation strategies for the region. Um, And that's looking at kind of the different pressures that every area sees. And so it's cool now that it's three years of data because we have all these heat maps for where the key habitat is for different species. And so, like, it's very obvious where the cougars are living. It's very obvious where they're not. It's very obvious that the highway is creating a real difference in the elk population density. And um, it's all just, I I mean, I love learning about it. It's part of this kind of obsession with um, seeing the unseen in nature. You know, this is like all stuff that is happening that we don't usually get to witness. But doing projects like this, you're like, wow, there was a moose here and then 10 deer came by and then there was a fox and it's just so cool. Um, but yeah, it's it's really neat. It's a really successful project. And um, I think, you know, my personal attachment to sharing about the research is that um, we are learning that there, there's not really a difference in types of recreation pressure with, um, with this particular ecosystem and so often with different recreation user groups the the skiers are saying oh well we we're not responsible because I don't mean to single out skiers but <laughs> g- group X is saying we're not responsible because we're here this time or hunters are you know doing the most damage because they're actually killing something and taking it away or you know anglers are actually like po- like harvesting something and therefore like their burden is greater on the ecosystem. And, and really what this kind of research is um, bringing to light is that it's not a conversation of who's taking and who's not taking from the ecosystem because the pressure and the disturbance that the wildlife is seeing is causing so much impact that we don't normally account for. And so the animals here are have consistent observable behavior Monday through Friday and then Saturday and Sunday when everyone's out hiking and recreating, they completely change. And so it's creating overlap. They call it the weekend effect and it's creating overlap in species that don't normally have it. It's decreasing hunting hours for top predators and, um, causing all these crazy impacts that we don't really have measured up until now. And so to me, it sort of levels this conversation around who's responsible for what and sort of minimizes that age old debate into, are you an impact in your ecosystem by being there? Yes. And then you just draw the line there and say, okay, how do we be you know, more responsible about this?
1: That's awesome. Um, that kind of reminds me of like, I've always been curious about the whole, um, like urban development and the impact upon wildlife and how that kind of affects it and, you know, where it drives them and puts them in different zones and pressure and things like that. And it's 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 interesting to see where you have definitive data that way where you can say, look, we are intrusive, we're impacting them. This is maybe how we could mitigate it or minimize it. That's, that's a good thing to have because you see so much habitat, you know, just being taken away from them. And then it's like, where does it go? Where do these animals go? And then now you're, you know, sending them into other zones and now they're being pressured even more because you've got, you know, human interference with that. It's, that's a crazy thing. But, um, so I want to kind of talk about how you went and you testified in 2019, you went and you testified in front of Congress about conservation and the importance of our public lands and, and wildlife to businesses and then that ties into what you're currently working
2: on yeah so we um we're in this really cool stage as an outdoor recreation economy and industry where we're just now getting our uh our sort of um chutzpah measured if you will <laughs> like we're a, we're a relatively young uh industry you know 50 years old or something like our our first leaders are just now starting to retire and the first CEOs of all these huge companies that we've we've um you know we have all the gear because of and uh it's only in the last handful of years that there has been um studies with the the BEA and other Parts of the government that are actually measuring the impact that we have as a contributor to GDP. And I'll get to why this is important. I know this is nerdy, but um, (laughs) it turns out that we are a huge um, economic power. Um, You know, we're $887 billion a year. We're 2.2% of GDP. This is more than oil and gas. This is more than computers and electronics. And so essentially what that enables us to do is go to Congress and say, hey, like our industry is really important. Here are the numbers behind it. And we need investment in infrastructure and the f- national forests. And we need the BLM to be operating well. And we need investment in our recreation infrastructure. And we need public lands to stay public lands because we that's our essential infrastructure as as um, as an industry, so it's I think a really cool time to be a part of the outdoor recreation economy and outdoor industry in general because we're all um, getting organized around our economic impact and what that means for our conservation ability um, in a in a new way. Um, so the I got invited to testify in front of the. House Small Business Committee on behalf of the outdoor recreation industry by this group called the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable uh, last fall. And it was the first time that um, there had been a hearing for our industry outside of the Natural Resources Committee. So think of it like, and again, the government being like, oh, you have needs that are related to small businesses. What are those? And then I was there to kind of explain, like, yes, our needs are are very similar to other sectors. We have, you know, trade and workforce issues and all of that, but guess what? Like we are, our, our core infrastructure is the outdoors. It is our wild places. It is public lands. It is all these things that guess what haven't been reinvested in, in a long time. <laughs> and we need the land and water conservation fund to get its full funding because, you know, X, Y, Z, and just on and on and on. So, um, Yeah, it was one of the scariest things I've ever done, one of the coolest things I've ever done, um, and and has absolutely led, you know, been one of the things that has now led me to working for that organization, um, which is pretty cool. It's, again, just these surprises in life that you can't ever really plan for yourself.
1: So can you kind of elaborate on, like, the different groups that are part of that uh, outdoor roundtable then? Because... I want to make sure that everybody understands that it's not just, you know, hunters and anglers. It's, it's everybody in outdoors, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So we're the only group that, uh, represents all recreation sectors. So motorized, non-motorized hunters, hikers, climbers, skiers, everybody. Um, and we're a bipartisan group that's based in DC and, um, luckily I get to work remotely even everybody's working remotely <laughs> right now. Um, but we, uh, so all of these different activities that we think about in outdoor all have uh, trade associations that are um, kind of the key group that, that advocates for that industry's needs. So, you know, the nuances of what the, uh, fly fishing industry needs and how, you know, their specific conservation priorities and how that is either similar or different to, you know, the ski industry. And um, we are the convening body that brings all of those groups' interests together and and kind of holds the national conversation for what recreation as a whole is looking for and needs. So it's, um, you know, a lot of it is, you um, economy-based, trade-based, but then there are these huge um, land, public land legislation uh, packages that have a direct impact on our whole industry as kind of the core infrastructure that we depend on in order to build the outdoor recreation economy and industry. So um, we're the ones that are running around D.C., especially my, uh, my boss, Jessica Wall, you know, knocking on doors and lobbying and, and making sure that the outdoors is on the, on the forefront of the national dialogue.
1: I find that kind of interesting because so many times you see divisiveness between these different groups. Um, say, you know, rock climbers versus hunters or your, your average hikers that aren't hunting or doing, you know, angling or anything like that, they kind of almost, sometimes you see it where somebody's kind of looking down upon you when you're on the trail and you've got a rifle on your back or a bow in your hand. I mean, was that, was there some serious challenges in front of you when you tried to bring these groups together or what was, I mean, how did that all go about the way of how you got it together? Because I feel like there would be some serious challenges there.
2: Yeah, there are, um, you know, I think it's more on the user end user side of things like the leadership and, and at least the trade associations and the businesses that I work with, I think kind of more inherently understand the importance of collaboration, um, and how like we have to work together on, on this large scale, large capacity in order to get people to listen to us. Like the problem and why, why we're just now seeing recognition in the outdoor industry is because there hasn't been kind of a consolidating effort to um, come and bring our needs together and then advocate. And, and basically politicians were like annoyed. They're like the... The so-and-so group comes at 9 a.m. and they (laughs) want this and the other group comes at 11 and they want this and you guys need to get it together. Um, So, I mean, that's kind of the impetus behind two major conservation organizations that we all know of, one of them being TRCP, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and Outdoor Alliance. They're um, started by, their original funding came from the same foundation that said, here, get it, hikers climbers bikers get it together like form an organization that is going to help you get your policy agenda more unified sportsmen you do the same um so we have you know these groups and like trcp and outdoor alliance and outdoor recreation roundtable that are really the convening bodies for for helping fix the issues that you're talking about and i think on the end user side um I think my long-term hope is that you know we've 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 done a lot in the last couple of years on the, the media and storytelling side. I think to build compassion amongst user groups, specifically hunters and non-hunters, and um, well, hunters are getting better at sort of sharing their stories in a way that's digestible for those that don't hunt, and that's our responsibility to do so. Um, and I, I guess my hope in the long run is that. From an infrastructure perspective, we can understand like how people are using public lands and wild places uh, better so that we can kind of plan for different user groups to have the experience that they're looking for right now. It's kind of a free for all, you know, and you do end up kind of having overlap with other groups and, and in ways that's either unsafe or confusing or frustrating. And um, I, th- I think we can we can do better there.
1: That's, yeah, finding common ground is really, I mean, literally pun intended, it's common <laughs> ground. We're all sharing it, right? So it's one of those things that we need to kind of work on to realize that it's all our, our grounds. And yeah, we definitely need to learn how to use it. Especially, there was somebody, I can't remember who it was, they were telling a story about dirt bikes and they were elk hunting and the dirt bikes were ripping by them at like, you know, just odd times. And then they saw one guy, I think he might actually been hunting and it was on a dirt bike. And it's like, do you actually expect it? see anything or but anyway that's a different story for another time but so kind of run me through do you have any plans for any hunts or anything like that coming up then or is it going to be like a over-the-counter spike bull tag or what are your plans
2: yeah um well it's turkey season right now and I'm hoping to go out tomorrow um I think we have a couple more weeks it's kind of low priority I'm I'm a little um cooped up with COVID and kind of just don't want to have crowded natural exp- natural world experiences right now but hopefully I can get somewhere where there's not a lot of people um and then this fall I'll have I'm just focusing on Utah hunts this year um partially because of COVID and just you know I wasn't really sure what was going to happen with with travel restrictions and out-of-state tags this season um but I have a a deer tag um, I do a What's called a dedicated hunter program here in Utah, which allows me to hunt. It's, ba- it's based on a certain amount of volunteer work every year, which the citizen science pro- project that I do counts for this, but um, I can hunt the archery, muzzle loader, and rifle season the whole deer season. Um and I started doing this last year because I thought it was a safe way to tiptoe into archery season and have rifle season to back me up if I if I needed it and I ended up not tagging out at all. Um, <laughs> but this year hopefully um, I mean I'll just spend a good amount of time on that tag up in my unit, um, trying my hand at different techniques. And then uh I'll also get an over-the-counter elk tag here. Um, probably a three-season elk tag, um, which I haven't had before. I had a cow elk tag last year, and I think I hunted over 20 days on that tag and didn't tag out, so that was fun. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, last year was a doozy. But, yeah, so, and then, of course, we have um, our bird dog. This will be his second season, and so um, I'm really hoping to do a lot more upland hunting this year um and then we usually have uh so that'll be grouse um chukar. i just got my nevada license and and bonus points in this past week so we'll probably take some trips out there for birds um my i guess my uh pipe dream is that we take a thanksgiving pheasant hunting trip but we'll see
1: where do you plan on taking that then, like South Dakota or something? Yeah, and, yeah,
2: I mean that's yeah, that's the pipe dream at this point. We'll see we'll see if we can pull it off.
1: That's always a good one. Um, so do you do you actually have to get like draw points or draw uh, like a unit or something to hunt in Nevada for for upland?
2: No. Oh, uh, okay. but I just bought an out- of state license, and it's part of what I'm doing this year is starting to you know, build my longer term plays with preference points out of state. And so I, I picked Nevada as a place where I want to eventually be able to big game hunt because it overlaps with us wanting to chucker hunt there anyway. So it makes buying <laughs> the license a little more tolerable.
1: Yeah, that's like I every year I, I, I'm kind of just in that same boat where I'm starting to build points. Some of them I think are kind of hopeless really to even try and do and I think maybe Nevada might be one of them. That's probably not too doable for me, but and that's like Arizona. Every year I have a license and it just goes to waste. I'm like, man, I should go out there and at least do something with it. But hopefully yeah. one of these years I can go and do like the, the real late season archery hunt that's, you know, January and you've got nothing going anyway. So mm-hmm. maybe I could do that, but so that's really cool. That's awesome that you're doing that with the, with the dog. So is he a pointer or a flusher then?
2: He's versatile, so he's oh, a um, he's a Poodle Pointer, which is a versatile hunting breed that does both. So, yeah.
1: That's pretty cool.
2: <laughs> that's yeah, awesome. He, yeah, he's, well, sorry, I mean, he's a pointer. He's versatile in the sense that he does um, upland and waterfowl. Oh, okay. Um, so he's not, he's not a flushing dog.
1: <laughs> so I thought maybe like if you're hunting quail or something, you just send him in to flush them and then, but okay, that makes sense. No, so he has a pointer. pointer. <laughs> I like pointers yeah, a lot better than flushers. I don't, I don't really understand the Or maybe it's just because I'm not that great of a shot and I'm at the ready then when the dog's pointing, but it makes sense to me.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you have to be a good runner if you're also using a flushing dog or something or a good shot. Or you shot. have to have yeah. a good
1: dog that stays within range, right? That's, yeah. That's the other yeah. thing. I see so many people out there that their dog gets so far ahead of them, it's like, what good is that dog even doing right now? You know, it's it's just they're so far out that if the dog does flush something up, you're not even gonna be able to shoot it. <laughs> but
2: right. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, I enjoy a little bit upland. I don't do enough of it, but I, I don't know. I, I tend to focus more on the whole big game thing, but hopefully next year. Yeah. Cause this year's already to me, I'm just writing this whole whole year off already. I'm going to focus on whitetails yeah. this year, but hopefully, I can get out and do an Alkant 2021. That's going to be the year. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and close the deal. Hopefully, maybe in the San Juans or somewhere near there. That's uh, nice. that's the goal. But I appreciate you coming on. Um, can you tell people a little bit like where they could find you, uh, all that kind of good stuff, and then sure.
2: Yeah. I, um, I have a tiny corner of the internet on Instagram, which is just my name, Lindsay Brown Davis, but Brown has an E so it's a little harder to find than just the norm. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, I, that's mostly just hobbies for me, a place to share kind of just cool tips and tricks and relate to other people. I, I really do love, um, Instagram for that. I've built a pretty big community of people that share similar hobbies and, and learned a lot about hunting through that channel. So I do love spending time there. Um, and then, um, I, my work with the outdoor recreation Roundtable um, can be looked at at recreation Um, and you can go look at all the different member organizations that we work with. Pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think that's about it.
1: Um, don't you have like a, a website or something too, right? That ties, ties it all in with all your articles and everything as well that you Yep. Written.
2: That's also true. Um, which I, I'm pretty sure it's lindsaybrowndavis.com.
1: With an E. Brown with an E. With an so E. So everybody knows. All right. That's awesome, Lindsay. I look forward to seeing more of your content. I look forward to seeing your progression as a hunter. And I want to see you close, maybe notch a few tags this year. And then, of course, I will hopefully see it on Instagram and give you some likes on that. So I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. You have a good day.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great.